previously on the Enneagram Journey. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? Well, I'm a, an executive assistant at a major pet products company. Dave, I don't want you to tell us what you do. I want you to tell us who you are. Oh, all right. Um, I'm a pretty good guy. I, um, I like playing tennis on occasion. Um, also, not your hobbies, Dave. Just simple. Tell us who you are. I just... Oh! Oh! Yeah, oh, this is... Oh, so wait. You know, this is causing me serious psychological harm. I don't know. Who am I? Who's that guy? Who's that dude? I don't even know who you are. You are. Who are you? You. No, not me, you. Yes, I am you. Just answer the damn questions. Who are you? I have told you. Are you deaf? No, you is blind. I'm not blind, you blind. That is what I just said. You just said what? I did not say what. I said you. That's what I'm asking you. That is the question that we're asking. And not just who am I, but also who am I not? Well, this is the Enneagram Journey Podcast, and I am Joel. And we're going to be talking about the introduction to the Enneagram. Suzanne's most popular workshop is her Enneagram Know Your Number teaching. Currently on the table, LTM's online subscription service, we're going through number by number and having individuals who have been through this stage of their journey on to talk about it. Each week, we're posting the video of Suzanne teaching Know Your Number and then the contributors talking about the video from the previous week. Today's podcast is the introduction to Suzanne's Know Your Number workshop. If you would like to join us at the table, use the promo code WHOAMI, W-H-O-A-M-I, no spaces, to check it out for free. You know, if it's just not for you, you can unsubscribe at any time. Check it out at lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash the table. And again, use the code WHOAMI to check it out for free. You'll find this Know Your Number series, teaching, interviews, and full workshops with Suzanne, the Reverend, and other members of the LTM community. LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com slash the table. Don't forget to use the code WHOAMI with no spaces. Try it out for free. The table is a space and a community for all. And now let's get to the introduction of the Enneagram with the woman who just delivers it the best, the Enneagram Godmother. I start every event the same way, whether he's with me or not, and that is I introduce my husband, Joe. Um, the reason I do that is manyfold, but the first reason is because he's the best person I know. And um, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary this week, and yeah. <laughs> Um, and if you don't know, Joe was a Catholic priest until he was 40. So there's a lot to celebrate. <laughs> um, he's the best person I know, but he's also all of those metaphors. Uh, he, he is really the wind beneath my wings. He really is the person who makes me better every day. He really is the person that I want to wake up with. And I still, after 30 years, wake up in the middle of the night and look at him and think, how, how in the world did I ever get to be the one who gets to do life with you? So you guys, please meet Joe Stabile. 
So um, let me tell you a little bit about why I learned the Enneagram. I just got so tired of us being unkind to one another. I had no idea how bad it could get 25 years ago, but now I know. And um, I thought maybe if I could learn something that explained me to you and you to you and you to somebody else, that we could back up a little and maybe make some space for difference. I'm from a little town in the panhandle of Texas. I'm from Floydata, Texas. It's a farming and ranching community, uh, 5,000 people. And I'm an adopted child, so I didn't look like anybody. And my parents had biological sons who were 18 and 15 when I was born. And they looked one like my mom and one like my dad. So I started as a child looking for people that I acted like because I didn't look like anybody. And so I've been aware for a very long time that we actually act and respond to life in very different ways. And I watched and watched. And then um, I ended up, it's such a great story about how Joe and I met and him leaving the priesthood to be with me. <laughs> Except he didn't. <laughs> he left the priesthood for other reasons and then decided to be with me. But I, um, I said to Joe, I, I need just the right thing. I'm, I don't want to coach anymore. I was the first women's basketball coach at SMU after Title IX. So that's my, that was my old dream job, right? But I said, you know, with all the children, I don't want to coach anymore, and I, I need something to do. And he said, like he always does, it will come. <laughs> you know, who wants a holy answer, right? It's like, let, let's make something happen. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, I don't think you can make something happen. You have to wait for what's yours to do. So I waited and waited. And one day, Joe just called Richard Rohr on the phone and said, I'm a former Vincentian priest, and um, I'd like to bring my wife and come see you. And Richard Rohr said, okay. So we went and spent a day. And then we went back and spent a weekend. And then uh, we went back and spent another weekend, and then I read his Enneagram book, and then he said, you know, I, I think this is yours to do. Yeah, and he got all smug and went. <laughs> so then he said, uh, I'm going to give you some things to read, and we'll talk about it when you come back, but I don't think you should talk about the Enneagram for five years. And y'all don't know me very well. How many wonders are there in the world? Nine? There are eight. This, is the ninth. this is the ninth wonder that I did not talk about it for five years. <laughs> I just watched people and journaled a lot and read and asked Father Roar questions and watched people and journaled and read. And I'm so glad because I have become the person in the Enneagram world who does the Enneagram and. So I'm going to tell you this probably 15 times this weekend. I'm going to try to cut back from 30 because I just turned in the manuscript for my new book. And the name of it is The Path Between Us. 
and it's the Enneagram and relationships. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I want to get you on board with me that this is a powerful wisdom tool that is important enough that we don't need to use it for cocktail talk. Instead, let's use it for some personal transformation and kindness and compassion and uh, growth and better understanding for who we are and who everybody else is. You know, this isn't a dogma or doctrine or rules or any of that. It's just the truth. And when I teach your number, with one exception, there's one number that really likes themselves. But everybody else, (laughs) it's not my number. Everybody else gets a little bit miserable, you know, and you're, if my, like when I'm embarrassed, my cheeks do this thing, and people kind of turn red, or they fold up, or they get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. So when you hear your number, you're going to know that that's you, with one exception, because you're going to be miserable. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask at the end of every number if that's you. And I would like for you to raise your hand, but I don't care if you raise your hand nine times. Like it could be, well, I thought that was me, but really this is me. Well, I thought this was me, but really it could be this. And one number particularly does that. So I want you to feel okay about that. I want to know right now how many of you know your number from taking a test or an indicator. Okay, ick. Here's what I have to say. I want you to take that information and just set it aside. And here's why. We have an institute for spiritual formation. And we've had it for 25, 6 years. In the institute, people came for two years once a quarter. And we would uh, use an indicator the first time they were with us. And then they'd go away and observe themselves for a while. And then the second time when they came back, I would teach it orally. And in our history, with hundreds of people, maybe thousands, the test was wrong 62% of the time. Now, that's a pretty high percentage. So even the Rizzo and Hudson long test, which I think is the best one. So here's, here's why I'm opposed to tests. The Enneagram was an oral tradition for, we think, 4,000 years. And it isn't anymore. <laughs> and there's not a shortcut. And so if you got your number that way, I'd like for you just to really listen instead of listening for your number. Because it could be that that's not really your number, that it's really a different number. And if, if you're going to work on yourself, and if the people with you are going to work on you, it's kind of important that it be the right number, don't you think? Um, I teach different from anybody else. I'm a storyteller. And that'll help you remember what I say. If you're a copious note taker, you're in a lot of trouble because I'm going to talk pretty much at this pace most of the time. If you never take notes, you want to, because I'm going to say lots and lots and lots of words. And if you take a few notes, that'll help you remember kind of who and what when we are finished. (laughs) So here's, here's one of our favorite stories, one of his favorites. We were at the State Fair, State Fair of Texas, with a Catholic priest. Good country and western band. He said, do you want to dance? I thought, you can't dance. But I was being polite. I said, sure. 
So we danced for a minute, and he stopped, and he said, you know, if you'd just let me lead, everything go fine. <laughs> yeah, he said that 1,000 times since. Uh, and when he leads, everything does kind of go fine. So uh, I, I want you to hear your number taught from a place where you can be led um, to love yourself a little more and to be a little kinder about who you are and about how you see the world because you can't do a thing to change it. And I'm a big opponent of you assigning numbers to other people and telling them. You are for sure going to assign numbers to other people. Like, you're probably going to write their names in your booklet. <laughs> That's what people usually do. So I know you're going to do it, but I just want to tell you, you might be wrong, and here's why. Your Enneagram number is determined by motivation and not by behavior. So unless you know somebody really well, you don't know what motivates their behavior, right? So go ahead and assign numbers because you're going to, but leave room that you might be wrong. And then don't tell them what you think their number is because that robs people of the journey. And it's such a good journey to go on and to find out who you are and who you're not and all of that. The Enneagram is the only system I know that shows you exactly what's wrong with you and exactly how to fix it at the same time. And that assures all of us that we actually have all of the uh, tools, all of the natural resources that we need to be better at being us. I love the Enneagram, and uh, it's just one tool, just one. Our last book, uh, the, pa the Road Back to You, has been quite successful, and so Ian Cron and I wrote that book together, and we've done a lot of magazine things and a lot of newspaper things and radio interviews and stuff like that. And every person, every single interviewer has asked me this question. What's dangerous about the Enneagram? <laughs> and here's my answer. To make it more than it is. It's wonderful. And it's not the end-all, be-all of anything. In fact, by itself, I'm not quite sure what it has to offer. But when you put it with some other tools and some other ways of looking at life, it's pretty darn good. And I would also say there's nothing that you can't say about what you've learned about yourself with the Enneagram. You, you can say anything without saying numbers. And numbers are insider-outsider language. So as soon as you start number talking, then there are people who aren't included. And you can still say, you know, I used to pretend that I loved everybody. And as it turns out, I don't. <laughs> Twos. <laughs> so there, there are lots of things that you can confess without ever using numbers. And that's better for the Enneagram and better for the communities that we all belong to. And so I'm kind of a proponent of that too. The best part of you is also the worst part of you. And uh, the worst part of you is also the best part of you. And you know, culturally, we like to just get rid of parts that we don't like about ourselves. Well, you can't do that. You're gonna have to wrap your arm around all of you and kind of bring it along because you wouldn't want to lose the best part of you by trying to get rid of the worst part of you. 
And you'll see uh, that there are names by each of the numbers. Those are helpful, but they won't give you your number. So I hear that the weather is more beautiful than usual or something, which means that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to kind of keep a count on people who look like they'd really love to be outside on a Saturday tomorrow. But if So you can't say, you know, I looked at that thing, and I'm pretty sure I'm a boss, so I'm going to ride my bike tomorrow. Bosses, I have to watch for other reasons too, which I'll explain to you later. So just be aware, those words will help you, but they're not the end-all, be-all of anything. Those are triads. As it turns out, there are three centers of intelligence, thinking, feeling, and doing. And a guy named Maurice Nicole in the 1940s said, you know what? We all respond to life and all the things that happen first with either what do I think what do I feel, or what am I going to do? And that fit perfectly on top of the Enneagram. So now at the top, we have the 891 triad, which is the anger triad. It's also called sometimes the body-centered triad. It's also sometimes called the gut triad. And then if you come on around to the two, three, four, that's the heart triad or the feeling triad. It's sometimes called the emotionally centered triad. And then if you keep coming around to five, six, seven, that's the head triad, also called the mentally centered triad, and it's called the fear triad. Most systems that help us understand ourselves and one another are static, right? So like I'm an ENFJ on Myers-Briggs. And I've tried really hard to change the E to an I, and it's not going very well. <laughs> I'm a pastor's wife. Um, Joe's been a pastor in the United Methodist Church for the last 30 years. And, you know, I, I don't know anybody who watched me growing up who looked across the room and thought, boy, she'd make a good pastor's wife. <laughs> so here I am <laughs> trying to kind of make my way in the world. <laughs> Um, as an extrovert, feisty woman who's often tired and therefore. <laughs> so that's tricky. Um, <clears throat> what happens with the Enneagram as opposed to being an ENFJ, and I think Myers-Briggs is great. I think they're all great. But the Enneagram's not static. There's a lot of movement on the Enneagram. So you can, in your number, be healthy or average are unhealthy, or in excess, or pathological. And I don't talk about pathology unless I'm working with all clinicians, so we're going to be working with healthy, average, unhealthy, excess, and mostly I'm going to teach to average in every number, and here's why. Because we spend most of our time in average in every number. If you think that you're healthy in your number all the time, then you're unhealthy. <laughs> Because that's not happening. There's a lot of movement up and down, lots of movement, and we're always moving through those places. And I'll talk a little bit about excess. But if you look at these arrows, you'll see that there's more movement, and the movement is marked by lines on the Enneagram. The number on either side of you is referred to as a wing. And you have the first, you have one wing for the first half of life. This information is real important. And you add the other wing in the second half of life. So then you have both. 
Some people have big wings. Some people have little bitty wings. Some people have a big wing, first half of life, little wing, second half of life. But what happens is if, if you don't know your number yet, you might misidentify as your wing number if you have a big wing. So today and tomorrow, wings are more important than they are most of the time, unless you're a nine with an eight wing or a three with a four wing. And I think we'll have time to talk about that later. If you look with these arrows, then, if you go to 2 and you go with the arrow, you'll see that 2 goes to 8. And if you go against the arrow, you'll see that 2 goes to 4. Going with the arrow is a number that you go to in stress. And go to in stress is bad language. And I'm going to keep using it because the other language is a whole lot of words, and I don't want to say them over and over. So actually what happens is you take on some characteristics of that number. You take on some behavior of that number. My teaching is that you can't take care of yourself without the number that you go to in stress. And this weekend is not about that, but I'm going to give you one example of that and some resources. The number that you go to in security is a behavior that you need to experience holistic healing, to be the healthiest that you can be. So if you go with the arrow, you got to have behavior from there to take care of yourself. If you go against the arrow, you got to have behavior from there to kind of be more and more of who you could be. When things are as old as the Enneagram, you don't just jump in with new theories. So I've been working with the Enneagram for 30 years, and I believe something that is a little bit different than what I was taught. So the old Enneagram teaching is around stress and security, that when you're stressed, you go to the low, unhealthy side of that number, and when you're secure, you go to the high, healthy side of that number. I don't think that's true. I think the goal is to go to the high side of both, and I think it's possible to go to the low side of both. So that's why I'm going to give you an example of that this weekend. So what we have is um, a, a way to get a little bit from here and a little bit from here, and yet be the number that we are that sees the world the way we see the world. I'll say this several times this weekend, but you can never change how you see. All you can do is change what you do with how you see. So uh, as we go through the numbers, there are things about you that are going to be consistent no matter how much work you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter um, how you use this with other tools to kind of work on yourself. The symbol of the Enneagram uh, simply means nine points, and the modern Enneagram has a lot to do with a guy uh, named Oscar Ichazo and a guy named Claudio Naranjo. Now, I don't think that you want to run out and buy those books first. Uh, those guys are pretty esoteric, and it's all pretty deep and dark. We teach the Enneagram kind of from the stuff you get wrong as opposed to the positive side of your personality because we don't know ourselves by what we get right. We know ourselves by what we get wrong and we for sure don't know our internal terrain by what we get right. So people pushed and pushed and pushed on me from our community in Dallas where we've been for the last 30 years to teach a positive Enneagram day and say just nice things about your numbers for a whole day. So I did it, but I had a, it was a free event because I knew people were going to want their money back. 
because nobody got their number because that's not how we know ourselves. For those of you who are ones and threes, uh, ones, I'm going to tell you right now, don't watch your watch or the clock. I got this. <laughs> and I teach other things in the early numbers, and I, I'll make it through all the numbers, and everybody will get fair treatment. <laughs> so don't get nervous. Threes, buck up, because you're not going to like hearing about your number. And you're not going to like other people hearing about your number, and I don't know why. It's harder for threes than for any other number. So then, when you lean over to the person next to you to say, I don't think she said as many nice things about threes as she did about every other number. <laughs> yes, I did. Will. Haven't yet, but I'm gonna. But it's so hard for some numbers to hear certain things about themselves. You've been the same number your whole life. It was well honed by the time you were five. So, so I'm so patient. I'm such a patient woman. Please don't come tell me you're a 10. <laughs> uh, honestly, I hate that so much. <laughs> and, and I'm just about, I'm to the point now where when people come up to me and say, I'm sure I'm a 10. I've done pretty good now, 30 years, but this fist is starting to go. <laughs> so it's coming. Don't tell me you're a 10. And don't come tell me that you're this number now, but you used to be this number. No, that's not true. So don't operate on that premise because it is not true because it cannot be true. You're the same number all your life. Okay, are we good on that? I'm, I get a little preachy about other things, but not much. But that, that's real important. All right, I think I'll start teaching. So uh, I'm going to teach eights first. And I'll tell you why at the end of tomorrow. All right, eights are called the challenger or the boss. And their sin or their passion is lust. Now let's talk about sin for a minute. Uh, old Enneagram tradition is to use the word sin. We're going to talk about the seven deadly sins plus two. Evidently, Evagrius Ponticus woke up one morning and said, you know, I think I'm going to add two sins to the classical seven deadly sins. Now, I don't know what number does that, but I have a guess. <laughs> and so we have these uh, nine sins to work with. I teach all over the country, and I teach a lot of people who have really been hurt by the church. I teach a lot of people who have left the church. Um, I teach a lot of people who have been hurt by the word sin. So I interchange sin with passion, which is perfectly acceptable in Enneagram tradition. Um, so the sin or the passion for each number is what I'm going to talk about first. And I'm going to give you the Enneagram definition of that passion, which is not the same as the cultural definition or the Webster definition. So you want to really get that right at the top of the number so we all know what we're talking about. So eights are called the challenger or the boss, and their passion is lust. And they have a need to stand independently. To other people, it feels like they have a need to be against us. And I used to teach that it was a need to be against, but I don't think that's true. I think they just need to stand independently. And when we talk about lust, we're not talking about sexual lust. We're talking about the fact that eights are lusty and that they're very intense. They like control, and they like to be known for self-extension. 
Eights express what they think as intensely as they feel it. And they're, here comes one of the teaching points that you got to get. They're energized when they participate in discussions where everybody disagrees. Okay, now right now, you either are an eight or you're not. I'm not. I'm not energized when people disagree. Normally, after an election season, about this time of the next year, eights are kind of down in the dumps because the thing that they could talk about the most that would get the most people whipped up is politics. Fortunately for eights, this go-around hasn't settled down very much. <laughs> eights have a tendency to see things uh, dualistically. They are black and white thinkers. Things are good or bad, right or wrong. You're a friend or you're a foe. And there are people who can't help but take over if there's space in leadership. If there's a space, they just expand to fill it. They have more physical energy than any number on the Enneagram, so they can outrun you and outlast you. They only respect you when you're willing to go all out, and you're only visible to them if you have your own energy. Eights define themselves by oppositional energy, so they uh, know who they are by what they're against as opposed to what they're for. And they kind of like to pick a fight and get everybody all whipped up. You know, there are angry people and there are passionate people. I think we need to know the difference in all of that. And resentful people. Eights are people who kind of give extra all the time. So we feel pushed by them. You almost feel like you're just not quite doing enough when you're with an eight because they seem to be doing more. And there are people who control a room with gestures and the way they walk. Our daughter, Joey, uh, our oldest, is Joey. She's 39. She's an eight on the Enneagram. She's about 5'1". And when she walks into the room, everybody knows it. And it's not because she's loud. It's not because she's causing a scene. It's just because she is so much energy walking around that you kind of pick up on it. If you can harness all of that energy, then you have a, a really powerful person. For obvious reasons, when I first started teaching the Enneagram, I taught a lot in the Catholic Church. And I taught lots of missionaries. And as it turns out, uh, a lot of missionaries are eights on the Enneagram. Because eights are the people who have a heart for the underdog, but who have the courage to take on oppressors and dictators. So that makes them kind of perfect for that. The lust type is a larger-than-life view of what's possible. They have an innate sense of expansion, and if something's good, they want more and more and more of it. As young children, they tell me that they took a look at power, and it seemed to them that those who have power take control and kind of demand submission from other people, and that those who are weak or who show some kind of innocence have to follow. Now, this is subtle, but it's extraordinarily important. Eights actually don't want to be in charge of you. That's not the point. The point is they don't want you to be in charge of them. And that's a very different energy. I told you earlier that your number uh, is pretty well honed by the time you're five. So I want to tell you a story about a five-year-old eight that happened to be ours. The daycare center called. Uh, Joey was five, and she was in private kindergarten there because she had been there and the other children were there. It was helpful. And uh, the daycare uh, director called me and said, Suzanne, could you uh, please come in? Uh, we have a, a problem. I said, what kind of problem? She said, well, I don't want to talk about it on the phone. I said, are the children okay? And she said, sort of. 
So I said, well, I'm teaching. Do you need me to come today or can I come tomorrow? And she said, well, you can come tomorrow. I said, are you sure? And she said, sort of. <laughs> so uh, I picked up the kids and I said, is somebody in trouble? You know, I thought, I have a biter. You know, daycare shames you beyond reason <laughs> if your child bites somebody. <laughs> so I didn't know what I was getting into, so I get there the next morning and Mrs. Thompson greets me and she says, uh, come on in and let's sit down. And I said, okay. And she said, no. I said, no. She said, no, that's what she said to me. I said, who said that to you? Johanna, her daughter, Joey. I said, oh. She said, we walked in my office and Joey looked at me and said, why don't we sit down? (laughs) And she said, and I did. (laughs) And Joey didn't. So we were eye level. And she had a folder under her arm, Mrs. Thompson said. And she handed me the folder and said, would you please uh, look through this while I talk with you? And Mrs. Thompson said, so I did. (laughs) And she said, I was living through it. And she makes 100 every day. And I said, yes, she does. She said, you already knew that? I said, yes, I did. We don't give appointments to five-year-olds. I said, okay. No five-year-old ever asked for an appointment before your daughter. I said, okay. So I thought I was in trouble. So I I kept saying, okay, okay. And then she said, so while I'm flipping through, Joey says to me, now I understand that some children need to take a nap, but as it turns out, I'm not one of them. (laughs) So... I brought my papers for you to look at them so that you could see that I make 100 every day because I thought perhaps what I could do is I'll grade papers while the children nap. (laughs) And I said, what did you say? And she said, before I could say anything, Joey said. Now, I understand that could be awkward. So if you don't want me to do that, I'll help the ladies who prepare juice and cookies for the children for when they get up from their nap. And I said what did you say? And Mrs. Thompson said, before I could say anything, Joey said, and I'm going to do that for you for $1.47 an hour. (laughs) And then Mrs. Thompson just went crazy. She said, Suzanne, I can't pay her. It's against the law. If they find out, they'll shut down the center. I can't pay her. And I said, why don't you just say no? And you could tell that that thought had never crossed her mind. So um, she said, could you help me here? And I said, well, uh, would, would you be willing to let her read on her mat while the other children are taking a nap? I think that'd work for everybody. And she said, yes, that could work. I said, I think it'll be great. And, and then she said, good, will you tell her? I said, not a chance. I have her every night and all weekend. We pay you for this. (laughs) Now, that story is 100% true. And it's kind of cute and kind of fun in a five-year-old. But you grow it up and grow it up and grow it up. And then it's a whole different thing. And it's a whole different way of being in the world. Young eights were rewarded for their strength, just like Joey was. They found themselves in leadership positions that they didn't seek, 
and they took on causes of other people, always wanting other people to show their own strength. Eights want their power to be met with power, even though it doesn't feel like that. And sometimes we feel dominated by eights. Their talk style is imperatives. It feels like they want us to submit. And we kind of want them just to go ahead and take charge, and we'll follow. But they want us to have our own power. We misread that. They want us to show up with a strong set of opinions, and they want us to have our own clarity of purpose. Eights are in the gut triad, and that's an intuitive perception space. And essentially what that means is they read the world in their gut. How many of you are in ministry and churches? Well, I got a few stories that, that um, you might hear from a heart different from everybody else because I'm a pastor's wife who's sometimes tired. <laughs> so um, let me just say that we sat down our first Sunday in church, and Joey was six years old. She was nine, Joe said. I don't know how old people are. I sat down, and uh, I'm a pastor's wife for a first time, and Joey says to me, see that woman down there in the red coat? I said, yep. She said, you can't trust her. (laughs) I said, well, Joey, (laughs) we don't know her. She seems pretty nice. Joey said, do what you want. (laughs) So... I'm here to tell you, that woman was a snake in the grass. And Joey's never gotten it wrong since. She went away to college. One year, Joe got moved while she was to a new church while she was in college. We had her come home for the first Sunday. It's like, point them out, honey, because I had learned over the years. If she feels it right here, I'm not going to get in the middle of that. Eights are alert for people who have hidden agendas. They're very impatient with indecision and inaction. They struggle a lot with people who beat around the bush and who never really say what's on their mind. And they think the rest of us are kind of creating our own problems because we're just too gullible and we're weak and kind of half-hearted. Eights are the last one at the party if they're having a good time, and a good time for an eight could be anything where the energy's high. So it could be an engaging argument, it could be a good movie, it could be a competitive game. Eights want to build other people up to be their equals. They want everybody to give as much as they're willing to give. Eights are either all in or they're not in at all. They don't participate in things that they're only halfway interested in. Surprisingly, eights find a lot of pleasure in supporting other people in their endeavors as long as the other person is going to do their best. But if you're going to do something half-hearted, you can't have an eight for a cheerleader. On a personal level, eights often don't know what they want. It kind of seems like they do, but they don't, and they know that they don't. And eights are the people who, if they call you or text you or email you, they expect you to answer or respond right away. They don't have that same expectation for themselves. (laughs) Eights in the room probably have voicemails that they haven't listened to. And if you're married to them, it's probably from you, so don't ask to see their phone. I've caused a lot of trouble with that, and I was so innocent in it, I didn't mean to. Eights want to be focused outside and on the action all the time. They're impulsive. Sometimes they act without thinking, and they find it very difficult to admit their softer, more tender feelings. Professionally, then, I guess we could say that eights function often as... uh, prosecuting attorneys and corporate chief executives and 
therapeutic and spiritual gurus and across the board and other things as well, but they like to lead. Unless they're met with strength, they'll run over you, but they don't really mean to. In professional life with an eight, don't change your agenda. Don't mix messages. Never hide the facts. You don't have to bring good news to eights, but you have to bring all of the news to eights. And the reason for that is control is central for them, and without information, they feel like they're out of control. Uh, our three older children went to uh, Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas. And um, our daughter, Jenny, is next in order after Joey, and she was graduating from high school, and Joey and her then-boyfriend, Billy, husband now, uh, were coming home for graduation. It's about a five-and-a-half-hour drive. And they, Billy had an old classic pickup truck. And they had exams the morning of graduation, so uh, they stayed up late and took their exams and started home, and Billy fell asleep and rolled the truck. And Joey was seat-belted, and she was thrown through that little window in the back of an old pickup. It took us a, a bit to put our other children someplace safe, and they moved her to a couple of hospitals. And by the time we got there, we were in Texarkana. And... Um, I ran in, and they were taking Joey into surgery. And she had rolled in the gravel, so there really wasn't a place on her that wasn't bruised or pockmarked. You couldn't put your finger anywhere where she didn't have a bruise. And there are a number of women, nurses, and Billy's mother was there around her when I ran in. And they told me that they had taken her down the hall towards surgery, and I ran down the hall, and they stopped them, and I ran up to the gurney that they had her on or the bed, and I, I said, Honey, I'm here. And um, I looked at her and got a little teary, and she said, where's Daddy? <laughs> kind of makes you, me mad at you every time I think about that. <laughs> so I said, he's coming. I'm here. And she looked up at me, and she said, Mom, do I look awful? She, no, horrible. Do I look horrible? And I said, yes, darling, you do. And the other women went, <gasps> so, you know, that's judgment right? You know it is, don't you? Yeah, when we do that, we're judging. I'm going to tell you something real big. It's real hard to believe. Eights will maybe trust 10 people in a lifetime. 10. And I'm on Joey's list. And I'm not going to get taken off for a lie. Eights want all the news. And she was going to get a mirror. And then I didn't tell the truth. And then I'm in trouble. And I, I'm just not willing to do that. I'm, I, I'm not willing to be off the list for that. I would say, though, you know, we're all different. If you all are ever driving down the highway and you come on an accident and you pull over, which you should do, and I've rolled in the gravel and I'm laying there. And I look up at you, and you say, oh, you're the Enneagram lady, which is what people call me who can't remember Suzanne. What's up with that? <laughs> and I, I say, I am, and then I pretend to remember you. <laughs> and then I say, do I look awful? You're supposed to say, no. <laughs> no, you look really great. <laughs> and in fact, I, while we're taking notes about how to greet me after an accident, I'd love for you to say, have you lost weight? Because <laughs> that works for me. I don't, I trust you. I trust everybody. I don't want to hear that I look awful. 
not interested. I like the truth in packages, you know, like this in a bigger package and a bigger package and a bigger package. But eights are really helpful in the expansion phase of a project when you're up against the wall and work is mechanical, eights get bored. When work is mechanical, eights get bored. So as soon as you get off the wall, you want to give them something else to do. Eight leaders need a place where there's always a challenger because they like to have somebody. They like good competition. Not so much for winning and losing. That's a different number. Eights like competition because the energy's high. They respect other leaders who can compete. And because they like to expand and franchise, it's pretty good for them to have somebody around who's a little more measured and a little more cautionary, who asks good questions. As employees, eights are either great or they're a pain, so you need to keep communication straight with them too and don't change the rules. And remember, all eights test everybody, and they'll just test you over and over, and then they'll test you at farther and farther times apart, but they'll still test you. Eights are people who will challenge and test authority, and they'll go over your head in a heartbeat if they think they need to. And if they don't know where authority stands, they become the authority. Board eights are trouble, so don't let the energy die. Joey and Billy, their first Valentine's Day, Joey called home, and she was so happy. She was crying. And she said, guess what Billy did for Valentine's Day? And I said, what, darling? And he had cut out footprints from his dorm to her dorm that said, I love you. Yeah, Joe didn't get me a Valentine that year. I was acting all like my feelings were hurt, and he played me just right. He came across the room and said, I love you, and by the way, I'm kind of worried for Billy, aren't you? I said, no, Billy's not who I was worrying about. Why are you worried for Billy? And Joe said, what's he going to do next year? He said, you got to be careful about going too fast, you know. I think eights are the most misunderstood number on the Enneagram. Anger is their emotion of choice. It's kind of right there on the surface, and it's easy for them to get to. I think they like anger for two reasons. One, because uh, I think eights think it's helped them make their way in the world. I think they think it provided them with some power. And two, because it covers up softer feelings, which eights are kind of afraid of. In relationship to H, you need to be careful. They're formidable opponents, so you don't want to just kind of poke the bear and throw gasoline on the fire for no reason. Once an eight has expressed everything, there's this kind of relaxation in them. So I'm going to tell you how to win an argument with an eight. Yeah, this is worth the price of the weekend right here. <laughs> if you uh, are in an argument with an eight, then what you have to do is state their point of view first. And the reason you do that is because they're used to being right. They're smart and they're quick and they're accustomed to being right. And if you don't state their uh, point of view first, they'll think you just didn't hear them. And they'll tell you again. So you state their point of view. And then with lots of conviction, you state yours. And if they're quiet, you won. And you need to do this. But you won't. You'll say something stupid like, I knew I was right this time. <laughs> and then you're right back in it. I 
know you need to celebrate when you win an argument with an eight. Celebrate with somebody else. <laughs> I'm kind of whipped up about something. You know, it's 2017, almost 2018. And all this male-female stuff is making me tired. I fought the good fight, you know, the boys' basketball team in 1974 flew everywhere they went. I drove the girls in a van. They stayed in the finest hotels. We stayed five to a room at Motel 6. They had a food budget. We took sandwiches and chips. I'm over it. I just uh, want to say as clearly as I can that I don't understand what I'm fixing to teach you. We love male eights. We love them. They're quick and smart and strong and determined, and we line up right behind them, and we think they're so great. And we put those exact same qualities in a woman, and she's a bitch. And my daughter, who used to teach third grade, she's a school counselor now, tells me that being a bitch starts in second grade now. You go from bossy in first grade to a bitch in second or third grade. And I, we got to stop that. And I don't know how. So um, I don't understand that, but it is what it is. And I think eights you need to know that you have a very direct approach, and it's kind of surprising sometimes. And I think you need to know that um, it feels brutal, and I think you know, need to know that when people say, I want the truth, they're lying. <laughs> very few people really want the truth, very few. So you gotta check that out, and I don't think eights are aware of the impact that they have on other people. So if you're going to have a relationship with an eight, you're going to have to be empowered in your own life. You're going to have to put up some energy. But they don't invite you to put up energy. They want you to be forthcoming and forthright, but they don't invite that. Joe and I were such mature parents that when Joey was in trouble, we used to go to our bedroom and close the door and do rock, scissors, paper to see who had to go deal with her. <laughs> and there was a reason for that, because we would be so determined that she was going to be punished in this exact way. Then we'd do rock, scissors, paper. Then we lost about 50-50, I guess. And the person would march down to her room, and then you'd just wait for them. And they'd come out of her room and gently close the door and start back toward you, and you would say, did you ground her? And the other one would say, she had a point. It, it was tricky. It was really tricky. It's still a little tricky. Eights are self-forgetting, and that means they've forgotten their most innocent needs. The need to be taken care of, and the need to be held, and the need to be nurtured. And those needs were sacrificed early because eights thought they had to be strong, and they thought they had to take control. If an eight trusts you to take care of them, then you'll know that you passed all the tests. 
in relationships with eights are often attracted to more feeling types because they know they lack that, so they're trying to intuitively balance that. They sometimes throw a lot of energy into the wrong thing, and when they do, you just have to be patient with them. They give, like, all they have to whatever they do. They'll be back. Eights are people who don't make friends with people they work with. They're committed to a family or a small group of friends, and they really don't want to be friends with you usually, just those folks that they want to be colleagues, but probably not friends. Once they trust you, they're able to say, I need or I feel or I'm sad. Somebody has to be a leader for eights, but I'm telling you, it's not easy. I have uh, borrowed uh, work from Rizzo and Hudson, who've done an awful lot of good Enneagram work over the years. Uh, Don Rizzo died about two years ago, leaving behind a legacy that we all kind of lean on. And in their work, they have identified unconscious childhood messages and lost childhood messages. And I'm going to give you a definition of both, and we're going to talk about those messages at the end of every number. The unconscious childhood message is a message that you picked up in childhood that you brought with you. And if you watch yourself for it, you'll recognize that it's kind of always there. It's something that you kind of deal with. And you might be unaware of it because it's always been there, but now that I'm going to point it out, it'll be more obvious in coming months probably. The lost message is a message that you didn't get in childhood that you needed. And it may have been offered to you, you just didn't get it. Now, I'm just going to tell you, you don't need to know who didn't offer or who did and where you missed it. And you don't need to know where you got the unconscious message. That's just a rabbit trail that's going to keep you from doing the work. What you need to know is that these two things have a lot to do with what motivates you. And motivation determines number, so that's really important. And you need to be able to kind of watch for it. The transition that I'm making is, I think a better, better language for unconscious childhood message is wounding message. Because it is one of the wounding messages that this number picked up or that your number picked up in childhood. And I'm going to gradually rename, for my work, not for Rizzo and Hudson, but for my work, I'm going to gradually rename the lost childhood message to the healing message because it's kind of what you need to hear. All right, now for eights. The unconscious message that they brought from childhood is, it's not okay to be vulnerable or to trust anybody. It's not okay to be vulnerable or to trust anybody. If you think you might be an eight, then I would encourage you to pay special attention to seven and nine, because those are the wings on either side of your number. And I want you to kind of listen for five and two because eights go to five when they're really stressed and they take on some two energy when they're feeling really secure. In terms of spirituality, I would offer that when eights begin to kind of look inside themselves, they discover that their real needs often are not being met, that they need to be dependent sometimes and they need to feel secure sometimes. And spiritually speaking, lots of eights don't look inside themselves because it's just too risky. It's much easier for them just to confront life. I think all eights need a chance in adulthood to discover their innocence again. And I think the spiritual journey is actually best for that. 
Eights are safe on a spiritual journey because they kind of know who to trust and who not to trust. But eights have to learn to wait and be receptive and to learn about truth. There's a value in learning about truth that we have to wait for. And you could learn from Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad that we have to be really careful about overpowering people. Too much direct power is just not very good. Eights are really surprised when they hear from us how tenderly we hold them. They don't know that, so we need to tell them. The lost childhood message for eights is, you will not be betrayed. You will not be betrayed. Eights are expecting betrayal, and unfortunately, we don't disappoint. Lots of betrayal goes on. You know, orientation of time is just super important, and we all have a different orientation, and it affects friendship, and it affects partnership, and marriage, and parenting, and all, all kinds of things. And the eighth orientation of time is the future. And I'm going to end uh, each of the numbers by talking about Joe and I taking uh, people that are every number on a prayer retreat. Joe and I kind of decided years ago that the church keeps telling everybody they need to pray, but we don't know how or or what to pray for, when or for whom. And it seems if we did it right, things would turn out better than they are. And then you learn that it doesn't matter how you do it, and then it's messy. So we used to take people away for three days and teach a prayer method and then let them go practice. So um, I'm I'm a two- I want everybody to love me at the end of every event, and uh, that includes you. <laughs> and uh, we, weren't, we weren't just batting a thousand with prayer retreats. Some people would come up to us and say, that was so great. And other people would come up to us and say, you know, thanks. <laughs> so we started trying to figure out why and what was going on with that. So. Here's what I have to say about eights on a prayer retreat. They don't go, so that handles that. (laughs) All right, how many of you think you might be an eight? I can hardly see for the lights. Let me see. Hi, hold them high. You know why you have to hold them so high? Because you are the people who love your number who don't want to come back tomorrow. You know what eights do? Eights leave and they get to thinking, hmm, I know my number. I probably don't need to hear the others. Yes, you do. 